Welcome, everybody, to episode 24, Sperm Stem Cells. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett. And this is the one and only Stem Cell Podcast. What up, Yos? I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm excited. We got our new uh, topic for the day. I never thought we'd be cover- covering sperm stem cells. Uh, I know. We're doing a little sperm show here. We got uh, Dr. Marco Sandel from Wild Cornell, who's had a paper published, Stem Cell Reports. He uses, his lab uses the sperm stem cells, spermatogonial stem cells, um, as their model system. And they had this really interesting paper talking about mutations as uh, an older father. So uh, uh, it's a cool topic, and it's very different than what we're typically talking about. So I'm excited to have him on to talk about it. So it's, it's, it's a departure from the norm. Yeah, excellent. And uh, any announcements before we get started? No, I think we should start, but just to remind everybody where we're at, www.stems... Did I say three W's? Just www. two. Www. <laughs> <laughs> Do I lost the W. Do we people even say the www.anymore anyway? Stemcellpodcast.com. Uh, at Stem Cell Podcast, Twitter is, uh, and uh, let's see, Stem Cell Podcast at gmail.com, Facebook. We're everywhere. You can find us, Stitcher iTunes, we're everywhere. Find us, guys. Thanks for the feedback. Keep them coming in. Other than that, Yost, man, let's uh, let's kick the round off. All right. So what's our favorite journal? Venus. Yeah. So the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences study. I've got two of them for you today. Uh, oh, showing man. That- two penises and a sperm, sperm <laughs> show. Yeah, that's good. Let's great. go, baby. So uh, showing that babies can learn what to fear by smelling distressed moms. So they uh, train the moms, these rats, to be uh, afraid of the smell of peppermint, which I think is funny to like train a rat to, you know, via shock therapy uh, to be afraid of peppermint. But essentially, uh, the the pups of the mother became uh, afraid when they just smelled the mother after they exposed her to peppermint without the shock. And so the, you know, through the sense of smell, this fear could be passed on to uh, the children. Uh, Hmm. And yeah, this, they tracked it down to the lateral amygdala and it increased, uh, you know, accordingly cortisol levels in the pups. And just the scent of the mom was an, uh, reacting to the smell of peppermint was enough to, uh, create this. And they also blocked the fear by blocking, uh, the amygdala signaling in the pups. So you can find that over in PNAS. Another one, uh, showing that the habenula, the small little pea structure in the brain, uh, tracks predictions about negative events like painful electric shock, uh, suggesting a role in learning from bad experiences. So the habenula also plays a role in depression. Uh, and I didn't know this, but, uh, to, Patients who are resistant to antidepressants, ketamine actually has been effective in these patients by dampening down the signal, signaling in the habangula. So uh, there's something about that little P-shaped structure deep within the brain. Um, there was an astrophysical journal study showing uh, it actually identified Two, through two different spacecraft, uh, a spike in X-ray signaling uh, coming from a galaxy cluster, uh, uh, 70 million, uh, 70 different galaxy clusters, actually. And uh, these uh, signals may be a, a sign of dark matter, the type of uh, decay that's seen in dark matter particles. So, yeah, that's always been hard to nail down, this dark ma- uh, matter. So this may be one of the first signals of it. But they, they kind of have a lot of work to do before they could actually say that. But it's an encouraging sign. We're not mm-hmm. sure what these uh, X-ray spikes are. Um there was Nature Communications discovery of a new gut virus. I don't know if you saw this. It uh, it's in a, about half the world's population, and they gave it this weird name: C R A S S phage, crass phage, infects bacteriodetes, which is linked to obesity. So, crass phage, this new gut virus that's been identified. Um, there was a PLOS one study, the public library of science. What's the one stand for? Do you know? Uh, nope. Yeah. It's I, just I, the first one. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> study showing that the, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex footprints indicate, uh, that it had hunted in packs. Uh, they had these f- parallel footprints. And so this has been like a, 
you know, sort of like a controversy in the dino world if uh, T-Rexes hunted in packs or were they just like loners? You never know. It could be a little bit of both. Like certain coyotes are like that. They either hunt hunt in packs or they're lone wolves, as they say. Could you imagine like you're sitting on a road with a buddy just hanging out and there's a pack of T-Rex just hunting you down, man? That's some scary stuff. Right remind, what were those velociraptors in uh, the movie? Oh, yeah, Jurassic, uh, Jurassic Park. Those things were nasty. Yeah, they, they would like, like like from the side, like the girl, she would just like look at you and then they would jump out from the other side, man. Yeah, I was expecting to see a lot more T-Rex and it was mainly about those velociraptors. So, uh, yeah, anyhow, it's scary to think that T-Rex is also may have been the same way. But um, I, know. I don't know if you saw this. They found the bubonic plague in China. <laughs> I thought that thing was eradicated. Wait, that's but, still around? Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. But they've apparently quarantined like 30,000 people in this one vill- uh, city slash village in China. So uh, let's hope that doesn't make a comeback. Yeah, that's um, not good. Yeah, it's a little too Game of Thronesy for me. Um, there was a PLOS One study showing that patients with schizophrenia lose uh, brain volume faster than healthy individuals. Uh, they studied over um, the span of nine years in patients aging from 30, uh, 34 to 43. Uh, schizophrenics lost 0.7% of the volume of the brain per year. Now, normally, or the control group lost 0.5% over the same time. So uh, they think maybe this may be due to the antipsychotics that were given to the patients, but hmm. it's currently unknown, so you can find that in PLOS 1. There was a J-Neuro study showing that high-fat diets can cause you to lose your sense of smell, which I thought was, I don't know, <laughs> weird on several different levels. But yeah, so um, they found this in, uh, let's see here, this was a six-month diet in mice. They had uh, 50% of the odor encoding neurons, uh, the mice that had this high-fat diet. So, um, yeah, you can find that in J-Neuro. There was a P-loss genetics study showing that nine variants in, a, uh, you know, the cystic fibrosis gene CFTR can lead to pancreatitis. And uh, they showed that in these pancreas cells, a gene called WINK1 is a molecular switch that allows for CFTR to secrete, uh, secrete, secrete bicarbonate rather than chloride molecules. And when this happens, it eventually leads to cyst formation in the pancreas. So uh, mm-hmm. thus pancreatitis. So weird pancreas uh, cystic fibrosis gene uh, link. And uh, there was a nature genetics study finding uh, the genetic cause for uh, common breast cancer, a gene called MED12, M-E-D-12, in nearly 60% of fibroadenomas, a type of breast cancer uh, found. And they used laser capture and microdissection to identify MED12 mutations are coming from stromal cells and not epithelial cells. And uh, the gene is also found in uh, this gene mutation is also found in uterine fibroids. So a bunch of fibroids with the MED12 mutation. You can find that over in uh, Nature Genetics. And finally, in PLOS1, they did a molecular detection of oral spirochete or cheat. uh, Cheat. Treponema denticola in ancient Ooh. human tissue biopsies of the Iceman. Uh, this 5,300-year-old 5, uh, copper-age natural ice mummy. So they found this like dental bacteria in the human tissue biopsies oh, of this Iceman. Yeah, 5,300-year-old cadaver. So um, expect maybe to see more from that uh, frozen piece of tissue but uh <laughs> i thought that you could find that over in uh pilos one uh and that's it for me man how about you nice man um i'm getting to mine but before i get there um this ebola thing is still crazy huh yeah i didn't want to cover it because i covered i know it last i know time. you didn't but I, I i i that's a bad way to go huh ebola uh, <laughs> uh, i don't even want to think agree. about it all right so uh, let's get into the stem cell world here a little bit more. There's a little um, stem cells incorporated in California. It's a uh, California biotech. They've been around for a while. They have a neural stem cell as their product. Um, 
they're in the in the press for some for some bad things here. They're yeah, I saw a that. Poo poo. Say it again. I saw that. What was that? All yeah. About? So there's a couple things. The first thing there was a lawsuit uh, that was claims that stem cells that they make and manufacture are in fact unsafe. So a, a former employee complained that Stem Cells Incorporated fired him after he blew the whistle on improper manufacturing practices that can endanger patients. There's this guy named. Uh, I'm trying to find his name here. Da, 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 da. I don't think it says, or I'm just not finding it anyway. Uh, oh, Rob Williams, the senior manager, uh, says that they fired him after he brought this to light. He said that they did not follow proper protocol in preparing the treatments. Um, and so now that's going in. There's a lawsuit, and that's going in. Now, on top of that, the CIRM, so this was Stem Cells Incorporated. Now, CIRM, which is the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which was the biggest... Uh, it's like $3 billion for stem cell research. Uh, I forget where that was, what, what year that was when that started. I think it was been, I don't know, but there's the president. I think it was 2004. The president of CIRM, Alan Trousen from, from 2007, um, this is now the, the biggest controversy. He recently um, accepted a position on the board of directors from of one of its highest profile grantees, Stem Cells Incorporated. So Stem Cells Incorporated gets funding from CIRM, and now Ooh. the president, past president of CIRM, is now sitting on their board. Um, and that's kind of weird, obviously, because he was involved in making decisions to give them money. They were they're awarded a $20 million grant to, to some sort of Alzheimer's thing, and that that proposal has been rejected numerous times based on scientific uh and you know they just didn't think the science was good enough many times and then finally they did get it yeah and now trounds and now is over there that's what and we call so the revolving so, so, yeah, door it's, yeah it's weird right it's so it's, it's just kind of dirty there's a lot of conflict of interest and now they, they said that they would look into it so CERM has lawyers getting involved and investigating but the, the, the lawyers CERM is using are CERM's lawyers so it's even worse uh, so there's this whole uh, that whole CIRM situation is just is just no no bueno. So no bueno. Uh, that's just in the regular press. Uh, into the science science world, there was a sh- report here: sugar mimic help embryonic stem cells develop towards nerve cells. Um, so basically, this is a chemical biology. They were able to they they basically created proteoglycans. So we know that there's these long chains of sugars that dangle from proteins. They they post translational modifications, what they call them. Those sugars are really really important um, in signaling and how the cells will respond to things like FGF, which we'll talk with uh, Marco about later on. Um, so they were able to uh, mim- they were a- they wanted to mimic. Uh, basically like heparin sulfate, which is another one of these proteoglycans. And so they were able to create these sugars, if you will, and they were to show that um, they, they were able to show that when they put them into culture, uh, they were able to help differentiate towards uh, neural rosettes and neural differentiation. Um, let's see here. Okay, this was cool. This was in nature. This is the, there's, I don't know if you saw this. Teeth sprout from glia-derived stem cells. So it's been known for a while that in the tooth pulp, there are stem cells. There are mesenchymal stem cells that can regenerate teeth. Um, but the origin of the stem cells were not really known. Yeah, we so talked this about group, them once before with the light laser, you know. Yeah, uh, yep. So this is from the Karolinska Kajfried. And what they show is that those stem cells, the stem cells, there's a reserve of stem cells in the peripheral neurons in the tooth. So the neurons are actually harbor these stem cells, and these stem cells are of glial origin. Um, so there's a gl- there's a glial stem cell inside a n- peripheral nerve in the tooth that gives rise to uh, mesenchymal stem cells, and then so forth, the tooth cells and things like this. So they they're, they presented this kind of ontogeny or this this developmental process of where the stem cells are actually from in the tooth. Um, the mesenchymal stem cells, and there was, in fact, they get harbored in the nerve and they're glial of origin. So that was interesting. That was in nature. Um, there's a paper here, research conducted on exercising mice. So this is uh, stem cell research could lead to new muscle repair treatments. I'm, all this stuff will be online for everybody who's curious to know where the journals are and everything. And I think this is the Journal of Medicine and Science Sports Exercise. So the scientists injected stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells, prior to encouraging mice to perform exercise 
considered the rough equivalent, I guess, of human lengthening contractions. And they found that the time of muscle repair was shortened and they achieved considerable development of the mice muscles. So it's they could possibly a new paradigm. You can uh, use stem cells to help uh, uh, muscle repair and such. We're going to see this in football, maybe, Yosef. Because yeah, that's exactly I hear, what I was thinking about. Right? Yeah, I mentioned? hear that they're trying to, to to put more Thursday games on the schedule, and oh, you know, great. players hate having to play Sunday and then having to play Thursday, which is insane because they kill each other every Sunday and have to play four days later. Yeah. So maybe they've been getting mesenchymal stem cell injections. <laughs> um, this is interesting. Stem cell therapy could lead to an HIV cure. I was reading about this. So um, the, these researchers are trying to capitalize on the DNA of the so-called elite people who are naturally resistant to HIV. Remember the Berlin patient? Yep. Um, it was the, this patient was cured of HIV. Um, I guess so. There's like a per- small percentage of people. I think it's less than one percent that have the CCR5 receptor mutation, mm-hmm. and so the HIV can't latch onto it. Um, and so what they're thinking about doing is um, they're going to the, – the idea, the hypothesis is be to take stem cells drawn from a patient's bone marrow and alter them to become HIV resistant. Um, if you could basically – they said if you could make a person's immune system mutated in a way that HIV could not infect it, then you may be able to cure HIV. Yeah, we so were this talking is the about approach. that with Daylon last, last time, uh, you know, taking about – you know, talking about taking their blood cells and making this – this hematopoietic stem cell, but I guess you could do that already with existing technology. You don't have to make IPS yeah, or anything. This is what I don't understand. So they would take your marrow. If So if you were HIV positive, they take your marrow, they would mutate to would have this receptive mutation. Yeah, CRISPR it out, make you... And then, be, then just yeah. put it, repopulate your blood, and then your HIV can no longer infect. So presumably over time, the load goes away, the infection goes out. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, but maybe you want the hematopoietic stem cell more than, you know, just bone marrow. I'm not sure. Maybe it's I'm not a sure lesson. either, but it's, 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 I, a, it's interesting. It's a CIRM-funded study, um, and it's going on right now. So I read that. This is, a, let's see, you had a biomaterial spider silk for xeno-free long-term self-renewal and differentiation of human pluripotent stem cells. What? I thought that was cool. You want to grow your ES cells on spider silk. What? So um, it's nature's highest performance material, which still blows my mind. Yeah, it's stronger than steel. It's amazing. Stronger than steel. And so they were able to um, uh, capitalize on this and create – they mimic spider silk. Um, with the, like a 2D, a 3D defined matrix for culture. They, they do not, says the silk matrices do not only allow xeno-free long-term expansion, but also differentiation in both 2D and 3D paradigms. So that's in biomaterials. So you can do spider silk stem cell. This was in NatureCom, role of astroglia and Down syndrome revealed by patient-derived human iPS cells. So they uh, Down syndrome, we know, is a mutation, trisomy 21, chromosome 21. Um, and so what they did, they took iPS cells from these patients, and they – I don't know why they chose glia. That's not clear. But they looked at the astroglia, and they found that they exhibited a higher level of reactive, reactive oxygen species and lower levels of sy- synaptogenic molecules. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like a more a compromised glia in, in uh, Down syndrome. Um, and then they showed that this FDA-approved antibiotic drug, menocycline, partially corrects these phenotypes. So um, just some more insight uh, into Down syndrome pathology using iPS cells as in Nature Communications. And let's see here. Generation of iPS cells from virus-free in vivo reprogramming of mouse liver cells. Uh, so the in vivo cell program of, of these terminally differentiated somatic cells uh, by ectopic expression has been shown. Um, so they they hypothesized that the reprogrammed cells could be extracted from a tissue and then cultured in vitro. So they basically did the reprogramming in vivo and then pulled the cells out. Mm-hmm. I never really understood why they do that, yeah. to be quite honest yeah, with you. Yeah, me neither. But okay, cool. I'm reading the conclusion. If you the reprogrammed cells can generate in vitro stem cell colonies, that are the, I guess it's because you can do it. I don't know. Uh, maybe the authors can uh, can contact us and tell us a little bit more about their rationale Why? behind that. But because it's cool. I, 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 I'm into in vivo reprogramming, you know, reprogramming things in the body. So when that happens, I read it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see. And then there's two more. This is really the last one because the final one will wait for Marco. 
this is in stem cell reports, gene expression variability as a unifying element of the pluripotency network. I thought this was interesting because when people are doing, dealing with pluripotent stem cells, one of the things we always talk about is variability. How do you account for variability between line to line? Um, one thing we know about stem cells is that they're um, heterogeneous, heterogeneous excuse yes. me, population because stem cells are self-renewing and differentiation differentiating constantly so it's very difficult to have a homogeneous population so this group they say that heterogeneity is a hallmark of stem cell populations Um, and they examined phenotypic and molecular heterogeneity in pluripotent stem cell populations using public gene expression data sets and they said that there was a high degree of concordance between global gene expression variability and the reported heterogeneity of different pluripotent lines um, they say that the low variability genes were the most highly connected, suggesting that these are the most stable elements. So what, I guess what they're saying is the variability is not necessarily bad. It's just a consequence of the pluripotency itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at this across pan, you could see that and come out. And there, are very, there are a few genes that aren't really variable that are really solid, and the rest are kind of variable, but that just goes to show the network. I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm wondering if they actually did any experiments or if they just analyzed a bunch of data. If so, that's what we need to do, man. We should just analyze a bunch of data and publish these papers. But that's in Stem Cell Reports. And then the final paper is authored by our guest, so I will hold off until the next segment. All right, Chris, so why don't you bring on our guest? All right, yo. So our, our guest for tonight is Dr. Marco Sandel from uh, Wild Corner Medical College Department of Surgery. I crossed paths with Marco. Um, we, were sp- we were just speaking before we started about how we feel old. I crossed, path, uh, crossed paths with Marco when he was doing a postdoc. I was doing a postdoc at the New York Stem Cell Foundation. We were both fellows there, and that's where we met. Um, so Marco's lab um, actually, this is this is actually fitting, you know, because we talked a lot about the niche last episode. We talked about how signals are really important in directing the uh, stem cell, and Marco is really into Marco's lab, and Marco is interested in trying to understand environmental signals and how they influence fate uh, of adult stem cells. And they use a, a model of adult stem cell plasticity in a system that we haven't really talked about on the show, the spermatogonial stem cell, the testes, and they use this model to study those envir- how the environment um, you know, instructs uh, a stem cell to either continue self-renewing or differentiate into you know, a lineage and so forth. Um, so more, more recently, um, very recently, uh, his lab uh, published a paper in Stem Cell Reports. The title of the paper is Enhanced Fitness of Adults Spermatogonial Stem Cells Bearing a Paternal Age Associated FGFR2 Mutation. Um, I thought it was really, really cool. And for me, I'm studying autism um, in the lab, so this kind of uh, is, is, is in my world as well because we know that, and Marco will probably tell us, that paternal age is a high risk factor for um, for autism in, in the offspring. So we'll, we'll bring him on the show and welcome him so he can tell us a little bit more. Welcome aboard, Marco. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm pretty happy to be here. No problem, man. Yeah, we're happy so, to have you. Let's, uh, why don't you start, you know, with the people here, tell, tell them how you got into the world of stem cells, um, you know, what, what got you into stem cells, what fascinated you about them, and, and kind of what, what led you to your lab and what you're doing now in the lab. Well, it was kind of a circuitous route, I have to say. Um, my uh, sort of distant interest was in angiogenesis, um, and, and that kind of led me to... Um, to cancer, and then I was actually doing a uh, clinical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I somehow got interested in a pretty uh, unusual tumor type called testicular germ cell tumors. And, um, you know, among solid tumors in adults, these are pretty unique because they they actually produce well they're unique for a bunch of reasons but they produce all sorts of different tissues and it, you can even see a uh, a man with metastatic disease with uh teratoma tissue all over the body all different kinds of tissues and and actually even in the metastatic state these tumors are curable which is very unusual so i was taking care of patients in the clinic with this disease and you know you can sort of see pluripotency unfolding in front of you and 
um, it, it just, you know, triggered something that, you know, there was no going back. I mean, it was pretty amazing to see the, um, the natural history of the disease and, and, and obviously curing people was pretty exciting also. But that's, that's kind of how I got into stem cell biology. This, this tumor, of course, is derived from a pluripotent stem cell. And, and actually, I mean, you guys may or may not know this, the first, you know, observations of pluripotency were from, like, the late 1800s, and they were in testicular germ cell tumors. Wait, no, talk about that, because I think that's interesting for the audience um, to know that history. Do you, do you, are you able to expand on it a little bit? I know, like, yeah, Gruden so, and, like, the, you know, the, the Nobel Prize was given out recently. Uh, so I don't know if you want to go that far back, but talk about the history with, uh, you know, spermatogonial stem cells. Well, okay, I'll just say one other thing about the, the germ cell tumors in terms of the history, because it's pretty amazing. So, uh, and I guess this is relevant for, um, for the, you know, experimental people out there listening. Um, so there was a, I think it was a German guy, I'm unfortunately forgetting his name at the moment, but he was a German pathologist who was looking at a testicular germ cell tumor under the microscope, and saw something reminiscent of a human embryo um, in the tissue. And in fact, there were multiple structures with three, ger- like three, literally like uh, three germ layers. Like, you know, we're talking like, you know, early, you know, uh, very early human embryo, multiple foci within the tumor. And he called those embryoid bodies. So the first embryoid bodies were not, you know, wow. mouse ES cells in a dish. They made they a were... comeback. <laughs> That's cool. That's crazy. Yeah. They're totally yeah. retro. They They're are retro. retro. Yeah. And, and actually, they were called um, polyembryomas was the historical name for the tumor. But then they later described them as embryoid bodies. Nice. Nice. So uh, this paper, you know, I feel like uh, Chris, uh, I, you know, I hadn't heard about it and Chris sent it to me. I was reading it. And I'm like, is he trying to send me a message that I'm just getting too old and I need to start <laughs> having kids? Because talk, talk about uh, some of the terms in here, like the PAEs. What, what does that stand for? All right. So that stands for paternal age effect. And this is the ph- phenomenon um, in which certain disorders are more frequent in the children of older fathers. And that's actually something that's been known for a really long time, like many decades. And that was first recognized in the the most common uh, form of dwarfism, which is achondroplasia. You know, we now know that those are gain-of-function mutations in FGFR3. But that was, um, um, you know, from like, I don't, I want to say the the 40s or the 50s, um, where that was first described. And now it turns out that there's quite a few disorders where the risk goes up with age of father at the time of conception. And so those are the PAE disorders. Okay, I know for sure that autism is one of those, right? And if your parents are both scientists, I know for autism, that's also a risk factor. But (laughs) the age of the sperm is uh, also very important. So so excellent. So so why don't you uh, bring us into this paper and what you were testing uh, on the P that this, you know, I was fine. I I don't know the history about this, but that uh, that theory that was brought up in 2012 can What's it called? The selection positive selfish selection. Yeah, talk about that real quick before we get into the actual data. All right. So, the I mean, the first observation was, and this was long before we were involved, but the first observation was there's an exponential increase in risk of this particular disorder, Apert syndrome, or um, it's also called uh, acrocephalosyndactyly. Yeah, we'll Uh, go with Apert. (laughs) We'll go with Apert. (laughs) Apert syndrome. So exponential increase in risk with age of father. So once you get um, past, like, let's just say 40 years old, it's like an exponential increase. Now, it's a rare disorder. So even though it's an exponential increase, it's still really rare, even, even in an older father. The next observation was that, um, and this was by um, Andrew Wilkie's group um, and Anne Gorielli, 
Oh, they, this is the selfish uh, theory? Is this yeah, the? so they were the ones that kind of, uh, I mean, people had sort of batted around reasons why it might be that, that at an epidemiological level, this thing would be more frequent in the children of older fathers, but, but they were the ones that really kind of um, set out the idea that maybe the mutation is so abundant um, over time, or increases so much in abundance over time because it actually uh, confers a selective advantage to the cells that first experience the mutation. And, and in this case, um, if it's a process that takes, you know, a lot of time, meaning years, it would have to be a long-lived cell type. And they hypothesize that the mutation happens in the spermatogonial stem cells, gives them a competitive advantage, and, then, and that's why it gets amplified in the testicle of the father. So can you just, for everybody out there, and even for me, just really quick, can you give me the life, the, life, the day in the life of a sperm? Yeah. And, I, and I, what I mean by that is they obviously turn over, right? So what's the timing there? So you have stem cells resident, and they're actively proliferating, I'm assuming, right? And Wait, then what, they, are, what is it, like 3 million cells a day? Three million? Oh, dude, you're, you're like several orders of magnitude off. So you're, oh. you make... You're, you make uh, you know, assuming you're relatively nor- normal, you're making two to three hundred million sperm a day. Oh my gosh! Dude, wow, that's why they're always moving. That's right. And so that's why I. But but my. To, I guess where I'm going, where I was going with that is, uh, cells that are turning over that quickly and proliferating rapidly are inherently susceptible to mutation and cancer. Right. I mean, that would be that's one of right. the reasons here. So right. So okay. So the the first, you know the first thoughts were that this was simply related to the number of cell divisions. And if you do the calculations, it, you can't really get an exponential increase that way. And that's where this selection factor oh, came. Oh, I see. Okay, so then the next, the next piece of evidence um, was that uh, some really remarkable work by Norman Arnheim's group where they actually took cadaver testes and they on a microanatomical level, they mapped out the density of this Apert syndrome mutation in, 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 uh, the, the several, in a set of cadaver testes. And, you know, their null hypothesis was that these mutations would be sort of randomly distributed throughout the organ on a microanatomical level. But instead, what they saw was actually clusters where there was many orders of magnitude higher density of mutations it was almost like a neoplastic process, but there's no tumor there. This is histologically normal um, functional tissue mm. okay, so, um, with lots of mutations in it. So, so my question for you is this APERT mutation in FGF receptor 2 signaling, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, confers an advantage on the sperm, correct? Well, that's, yeah. So, well, so, well actually, so... Let's clarify. It, it, it does. You know, our thought is that this is not. You, you could have many potential steps at which you could get a selective advantage. You could have a, a, a mutation theoretically that just helps the sperm swim better, and that right. would give you a selective advantage. Right. But right. That's so, not the kind of process that that could last very long. So, getting back to Chris's question before, hmm. the the self renewal. Um, We'll, we'll talk about mice for a second, and then I can tell you about humans. So yeah, we got to we got to give you a little background here. Right. So in we mice, tend to do this. We tend to start in the future, and then as we talk, work our work our way back. So let's start. Go ahead. All right. So so I mean, obviously, we know a lot more about mice uh, than we do about humans, and I have a little tidbit about humans that'll kind of blow you away. But 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 with mice, um, there's a stem cell that's thought to re- self renew fairly rapidly on the order of you know, every couple of weeks and undergo asymmetric cell divisions, you know, possibly occasional symmetric cell divisions and differentiate into um, spermatogonia, which then undergo uh, multiple rounds of, of mitotic divisions. And then you get into, into meiosis and, and um, you know, further differentiation eventually into spermatozoa. The point here is that in mice, this differentiation process takes um, just over a month. So, there's no long-lived germ cells there except for the stem cells. Every other germ cell along that differentiation pathway is gone, you know, within a, you know, a month or two. And, and in humans, um, oh, so, so one other point about mice, I mean, we know pretty well now, you know, 
from from work by other groups um, how frequently those cells are turning over. In humans, though, it's it's a lot more murky, and you see this number of 16 days quoted in the literature. Um, the, the interesting thing for human, um, that is, for, for the turnover of the stem cells, the thing is that the human stem cells are a pretty elusive beast at this point, and the data that we have, believe it or not, is based on a small group of prisoners what? <laughs> that were injected... Uh, in the 1950s, I believe, with tritiated thymidine. Oh my gosh! No and way. And then underwent biopsy. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. They accidentally, or they no, were, they, they were, volunteered, or they were just well, like they, shooting they, it up. They quote unquote volunteered <laughs> for this study, or they were volunteered. <laughs> they were volunteered exactly. So they, they so so they were able then to birth date. They were able to date. Or like somehow track. Well, they just look for you know yeah they just look for um, loss of the uh, you know they track the tritium. Yeah, time it out. So time. so for the listeners of the audience who aren't familiar that this radioactive isotope gets incorporated into the DNA and every time it divides it gets diluted out so we could birth date the cells based on that correct? That's, so That's right. Crazy. So everything we know about you know the <laughs> time you know this is a pretty important parameter if you want to model all the stuff that we're talking about like how off into the stem cells divide. Everything we know is basically, you know, comes from that sketchy experiment. So if it's 16 <laughs> days, then what? There's like transit amplifying cells that are rapidly proliferating constantly because uh, if the stem cells are turning over to that slow, that's slow, right? They're very... Well, there's many, there's many more rounds of cell division that go on um, to, 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 yeah, to amplify. Yeah, there's many, there's many rounds of, of um, you know, mitosis that go on once you commit to differentiation. Okay, so we, the the stem cell, like 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 most populations, will will commit, and then there's subsequent divisions in that population over and over and over again, and that's where you get the the sperm generation. Right. Um, the only long lived cell is, is the stem, stem cell. cell. Okay, so now walk now with this. Take take us down the road of this of your story here, and 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 what your findings. All right. So so the the. Um, you know, putting together these observations of, of um, increased um, frequency of the disorder in children of older fathers, of uh, one thing I didn't mention um, that, that, that Wilkie's group showed was you can actually detect this mutation in the sperm of randomly selected healthy men, and it increases with age. So presumably this mutation is arising at some rate in all of us over time. Hmm. And, it's just so rare. And that, it's, always know, and, de, it's always de novo. It's not something that gets passed on. Right. Th so that's, that's you know, this, this was a tractable, a tractable disorder to study because it's, it's monogenic, it's 100% penetrant, and it's, it's um, you know, uh, it, all of the mutations are on the paternal chromosome. It's never inherited from the mother. And it, there's never a, a lineage. It's always sporadic. Does it okay. affect the children as they grow up if they inherit it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, it, you know, it, it, it's characterized by um, uh, deformities of the bones of the skull because you have premature fusion of, 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 of the uh, bones in the skull and fusion of the digits. So, the, you know, these kids are not um, often having their own children. And, and you know, some of them may even... Um, you know, th there could be early lethality. So, so even if it helps the sperm, it's probably not, you know, a positive selector in evolution because the children tend not to reproduce. No. So there's this, this incredible paradox where, you know, we're thinking that the, the gene might actually be good for this. The mutation might actually be good for the stem cells, but, but clearly really bad, you know, in a Oh, in terms of overall human fitness, isn't that so interesting yes. in, the, in the evolutionary context, right? How like they give you your they give you the ultimate advantage, but they you know there's just no way you can really use it. Well, there's that balance, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, so, sorry. Go ahead, Marco. Sorry. So, so, so the the question was, um, you know, there were these great observations, sort of pointing towards um, a a positive selection or selfish selection, as they described it. But there was no actual experimental proof of that. And with our, you know, my, my, the system that we set up in our lab is basically to derive cell lines from adult mice and do 
all kinds of genetic manipulation of those cell lines in vitro and then transplant them back into animals to, to look at their functionality. And so we had a system where we could really test that hypothesis, and that's what we did in this paper. So we, we ectopically expressed the human FGFR2 alleles, the wild type and the mutant, in the stem cell lines and did, I mean, what I would call pretty simple experiments. We, we, we um, labeled the cells different colors, we mixed the genotypes together, and followed them by uh, flow cytometry over time in vitro. Um, and the, uh, the uh, APERT mutation gives a very strong um, advantage, competitive advantage to the cells um, when they're mixed together. But what was really interesting was that in our normal culture conditions, which are you know, super rich in growth factors, as, as most stem cell cultures are, um, we, didn't, we don't see an effect. And, but when we reduce the FGF, which is the ligand for the receptor, that's when we see the effect. Mm. So it only seems to happen when um, there's a certain limiting um, amount of growth factor in the microenvironment. So, so this this mutation actually, we should talk about FGF. It's fibroblast growth factor, and for stem cell scientists, we know this as sort of like this proliferation inducer, right? And um, it, here in this context, you're uh, just describe like how the mutation that receptor two mutation. Uh, which is the receptor, right? For I know FGF one binds. Yeah, to it's FGFR two, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right. so FGFR one also binds to FGF two, which is this major proliferative, you know, ligand. So, so this mutation, what does it do? It, it enhances FGF signaling and proliferation. Right. So, I mean, this is kind of hairy stuff because there's 23 FGFs, there's four <laughs> right. FGF receptors, <laughs> right. and you know, the the sort of native. Um, ligand receptor interactions that are happening in vivo are not so clear. I mean, you know, just figuring out who's expressed and who's not isn't, isn't even so easy. But, but um, what was known previously uh, from biochemistry experiments was that the mutation uh, enables, well, first of all, it, it actually decreases the off rate of binding for the ligand to the receptor. So presumably for a given amount of ligand, you get a bigger bang for your buck in terms of downstream signal. Mm. But the other thing that it can do is confer promiscuous binding of non-native ligands, meaning oh. other FGF, other FGFs that wouldn't normally bind to FGFR2. I see. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. So um, talk about like, so this receptor, I noticed it's kind of hard to visualize, right? The FGFR2. I've done FGFR1 staining, but I saw you had this crazy method to observe it in the testes. Yeah, so I mean, this is just something that I actually um, used as a graduate student, and it was kind of the key to my project as a graduate student, but it's just a, it's just a sort of hyper-amplification system um, using biotinyltiramide, which is a substrate for HRP. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, without getting too into it, the, the point is that, you know, if you have a really good amplification system and you do all the negative controls properly, you can see things that you can't see any other way. Right. And, and it's sometimes small amounts of things are very meaningful. Yeah, because I've never seen the FGFR2 receptor so beautifully demonstrated here. And uh, so, okay, one thing I have to ask you a question about. So coming from the stem cell world, neural stem cells, all that stuff, FGF2, you know, it's like proliferative. But then you got this other GDNF story, which is like for, you know, my world, that's like GDNF (laughs) helps dopamine neurons and neurons. So you've got this like pro-neuron signal with a pro-stem cell signal. Uh, Talk about that. All right. So, I mean, actually, the the best characterized growth factor for spermatogonial stem cells is glial cell line derived neurotrophic Hmm. factor, which I know you guys love, you know, we drink drink that in the lab. Right. So so the sperms like that, are they like, you know, brainy sperms? What's going on? I mean, I guess, you know, this, this, this gets to the connection between the brain and the, uh, the balls, (laughs) I guess. Um, (laughs) so we always knew it was there, but this is, this is now we have evidence of that. Um, but, so in terms of, I mean, the, the connection between those two uh, growth factor signaling pathways is pretty interesting. Um, you know, there's definitely evidence that, that uh, proliferation in, in the spermatogonial stem cells is, is mediated by ERK signaling and, 
and you know there's a survival signal provided by AKT, um, and so um, there's but there's multiple upstream factors that can drive both of these, and you know one of the things that we found was that um, I mean first of all you know you don't normally think of AKT as being directly downstream of of you know FGF receptors, but I mean certainly there's it's plenty usually, of evidence for that, but it's, it's not direct. It's usually ERK one two, right? Right, right. So you know we can clearly see AKT uh, phosphorylation when you treat the cells with FGF. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we could also see, um, I mean, the, the really unexpected thing um, was, that, was that in the context of this FGF, GDNF, you know, is clearly incredibly important for the stem cells. And what we found was that this APRT syndrome mutation not only... Uh, enhances downstream signaling, uh, sort of the canonical signaling, but also enhances the signaling um, that you would expect downstream of GDNF. And in fact, the cells become resistant to limiting concentrations of GDNF, which was totally unexpected and pretty exciting. I should also mention that, you know, kind of the simplest explanation that we were sort of anticipating was that the cells were just would just proliferate faster, and that's not what we saw. Hmm. So, it, and not only that, um, there didn't seem to be like a clear um, effect on apoptotic rates. So, it's it seems to be something more complex than simply affecting survival and proliferation. Nice. So, um, you obviously had to do a lot of collection of, I'm just curious about the, the details of how you do these experiments. How, how do you actually cultural culture spermatogonial stem cells or harvest them for that fact? Well, the, the, I mean, the derivation and the, um, I mean, it's not that much different from, um, just in terms of the time frame and the amount of work, uh, from deriving like ESL or from from mouse ESLs, but but the routine culture is not such a big deal. I mean, we re- it requires feeders, requires very specialized media. Um, the sort of tricky part of of this whole thing was the the second step, which was the transplant. So we use uh, a transplantation assay to measure stem cell activity, and so we take our cultured cells and then we inject them into um, chemotherapy treated mice. Uh, and then the the stem cells are actually able to colonize. You can count the colonies, and you can get a, an indicator of the amount of stem cells that you started with. And in a way, it was it was it was also surprising that the mutation actually increased the number or the the the, um, the activity the stem cell activity in those cultures. So we're we're still trying to figure out what that mechanism is, but clearly the mutation really helps these cells out. So before before we go on, you mentioned this. Uh, I'm going to read you this. Um, where is it? Da, 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 da. I'm going to read you this. This is from your paper. Just can you just explain it to me? Just clarify it. I think I understand it, but I keep reading it over and over. So you say at the end of the the paper in, in a society of increasingly older fathers, which. Um, um, is interesting in itself. A relatively large swath of disease risk could originate in these spermatogonial stem cells, even if the absolute increase in risk due to paternal age for any one disorder is low. Can you just clarify that statement for everybody, please? I just, I keep repeating it. I want to make sure I got, got that okay. right. So, yeah, there's a lot to that, and there's a lot behind that. So if you look at APERT syndrome, it's 1 in 60,000 uh, if you take all comers. So it's a rare disorder. It's going to be rare even if it's 10 times elevated, okay? Sure. But our thought is that, well, not just our thought, but we know that that fathers contribute the majority of mutations. That was from the Stefanson paper um, in 2012 in Nature, that fathers contribute the majority of de novo mutations to children. So mothers contribute a fixed amount, fathers contribute more, and it increases the older the fathers are. Okay, so the question is, how many of those are pathogenic? Now, probably only a a small fraction of those are pathogenic. But when you aggregate all of the risk, it could be pretty substantial. So the risk of having a kid with APRT syndrome or uh, achondroplasia or um, um, osteogenesis imperfecta or 
um, autism or schizophrenia, the, the, the absolute increase due to the age of the father might not be that high. But when you aggregate all those together and you think of all the disorders where, where still, you know, where the de novo mutations are just now being discovered, that whole effect would be pretty substantial. And the number of children being born to fathers in the, the I mean, I hate to say this, guys, but the 35 to like 45 age range um, is, is, I mean, that's what we consider on the older side here, by the way. <laughs> the, the number has increased 50% in the last 30 years. So that's like a shift in our whole, you know, demographic in our society. Yeah, now, I'm not really... saying that, that, like, I would definitely would not say that the increase in any one disorder uh, over decades is due to increasing age of fathers in the population. But, you know, it, it, it may turn out that there are some pretty big effects of this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely yeah, people are having kids later. That's oh, right. That's right. for sure. But you know what? I'm starting to this. This brings up this whole the like you know idea to debate. Really, it's just why why were why are men males? Why did we evolve to have sperm and be able have the ability to reproduce uh, until we die? And females cannot. If if we are introducing, if the majority of the mutation comes from the male, from the paternal, from the sperm, and in, in a sense. Don't you think that it would, it's a bad idea to allow the sperm or a, a, a man to, to be able to reproduce forever? I feel like that would just go against um, constructive evolution. We, we, are, we, are, we, are giving the, we are given the opportunity to reproduce wrongly, if you will. Um, the more and more I'm thinking about this, you know, it just seems unless over time we evolve to handle these mutations because we're getting, you know, we the trend becomes you're you're reproducing older, so your body, so and your people evolve to be able to handle the mutation load better. But right now, um, it would see you can ha you can technically, I mean, right? I mean, you could in theory a 65 year old man can impregnate a, a woman. So, but at that point, the mutations are probably rampant, uh, and it just brings up this. Now I'm thinking about this. Wow, what was the uh, why you know I wonder so, what that was about I mean part of it is I mean I'm, and I'm not a human geneticist so I'm going out on a limb here but I think part of it is that um, you can gain beneficial mutations the same way that's true and um, and there's actually evidence for paternal and even grand paternal and have uh, inheritance of telomere length hmm. mm. so that could be a good thing Telomeres, man. I mean, we could be an anti-aging, you know. Yeah, so, so there's all these sort of countervailing forces in in human evolution that I'm not going to pretend to understand, but I don't think it's as simple as these are all bad. Um, but you know, it's just a little scary that we don't really understand what's going on, and our population demographics are shifting, you know, no matter what, or, you know, inexorably. <laughs> I mean, we should also talk about sperm, how, like, yeah, I don't know, cutthroat they are. They even attack each other on their way to the egg, right? Like, it, it, it gets pretty hairy out there. I mean... So, the, well, that's true. And, and, I mean, the only sort of class that our work was relevant to would be the mutations that affect the stem cells. But, but I kind of alluded to this earlier. You could have mutations that... Uh, that actually affect you know sperm. sperm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, man, it's so scary. It's actually scary. Now I'm scared. All right. Well, no, I don't think there's any reason to be scared. Well, no, you know, I don't mean like I'm I'm really scared, but it's 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 concerning when you really think about it. And if you're especially in that age range and thinking about reproduction, I feel like especially now me. Uh, and you, Marco, um, uh, in this world where we, we read and we, we live it every day in the lab, it's uh, it's reinforcement. First of all, you two. First of all, you two both had children before thirty five. I'm over thirty five, so no, no, I'm I didn't. I didn't. Oh, really? I was, uh, yeah, I was thirty five. I think exactly. Oh, um, so you are 36. in the age group. Um, and so was my dad. So, like, I'm <laughs> you know, See I'm that? a poster child for this. So. I'm okay so far, but you never know. <laughs> You're, all right, great. So. so everybody, go. It's really, really interesting. Go check it out. It's in it's in Stem Cell Reports, which is uh, an open 12th. access. So you can go read the whole thing. Uh, we'll we'll put the link up on the website. You guys can can check it out. So um, congrats on the paper. Nice job. Let's let's move to the next part. So then the next portion of this uh, of the interview, we ask our guests for the to tell you know give their idea opinion or whatever you want to call it on 
where they where they see the the nearest stem cell therapy. Yosef likes to say the where's where's the beef question because a lot of people listening um, are curious to know how stem cells and when or what might help them and their family. So as a someone in the field. Uh, could you just offer maybe a little, a uh, couple minutes on what you think might be, whether it's, you know, drug screening or something like that, if you can give your uh, thought as to where you might see the nearest therapy coming. Okay, well, I'm going to go out on a limb. And, and by the way, I'm going to, I mean, I could talk about the, the spermatogonial stem cells because there's, there's some interesting stuff there. But just in terms of general stem, uh, cell therapy and stem cell therapy, I'm going to go out on a limb and, you know, go back to um, some of the stuff that I worked on years ago and, and to Shaheen's work and say, I think that in the vascular area is, is an area that's going to take off quickly. And the reason is the vasculature is easily accessible. You can, you can stick cells into somebody with an IV injection. And and now if you stick um, cells in the wrong place, they're obviously not necessarily going to get to where they need to go, but um, it's known that, endothelial progenitor cells can engraft into the walls of blood vessels. And whether it's to address a, a vascular disorder or potentially to, you know, deliver a drug through engineered vascular cells, I think this is, you know, I wouldn't say this is the first thing coming down the pike, but I think it's an area that you haven't heard that much about. And I think it's going to take off for the very reason that there's clear evidence that you know, at least some endothelial cells circulate in the body and can engraft into the walls of vessels. So if that could be harnessed um, for therapeutic purposes, even if you have cells, you know, expressing some factor that, you know, is normally made by another cell type, uh, I think that that's a route where you don't have to worry about getting the, delivering the cells into the environment so that they can engraft properly. The vessels are all over the place. Wow, that's that's great. We're just excited to hear anything besides RPE at this point. But yeah, we hear, we get the eye a lot. But I knew, I knew, I knew. You know, I'm sure you do, and I think it's you know, an it's an easy way out. You know, it's an it's, easy way. Out. It's an easy way. It's it's accessible. You can look into it. No, but I, the the vasculature. I agree. I feel like it's it's been bubbling in the background for a while, and it's just blown up. Shaheen had just had that really nice paper. Shaheen Rafi. Yeah, Shaheen sorry. Thank you. So he says the laugh that we talk like people out there. There's not like thousands of people listening. <laughs> they have no idea who we're talking about. Shaheen Rafi. Uh, so and 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 a lot about the vascular niche, and we did a show about the niche uh, last time. It's really bubbling. And I can see it really starting, like you said, just taking off and being very easily accessible system that people can see some immediate benefits. So um, it's good that you brought that to light because I, I agree with that. I don't uh, Yosef and I both don't know too much about it. It's not our world, but we're learning more about it and it's fascinating. That's for sure. Um, all right. So not no I. Nice. Let's. Uh, what do we got, Yos? We got. Oh, we got our. This is this is part. Sometimes the best part of the interview here. We're going to talk about. We ask for a funny story or a humorous event or a lesson learned. So, Marco, give us something to uh, to make us laugh here. What do you got? Anything good? Well, okay. I mean, you know, as researchers, we all find ourselves in in weird situations sometimes. Um, and in the course of our work, um, that. You know, weird, the weirdest situation um, came in the form of um, collecting human tissue for, for some of our work. So, I mean, the work I told you about was mouse, but we're trying to extend this uh, to human and, and, and understand, you know, what it would take to make a human spermatogonial stem cell tick. Um, and to do those studies, some years ago, we embarked on a, um, a collaboration to collect whole testes, in fact, bilateral testes from brain-dead, you know, cadaveric uh, human organ donors, one of the benefits of being in a place like New York, or at least in the United States, is that there's a huge... Um, brain-dead population? No, I'm joking. Well, yes, that too, but, but <laughs> so those people are sitting at home on their couches. I'm talking about the ones who are, who are actually actively having their hearts, you know, transplanted into other, you know, into people who need them, but... but um, but uh, so we we basically a, a few years back we started going around to um, hospitals where you know after getting all the appropriate consents from the from the families um, 
and collecting. We would do the orchiectomy, which is where you, you know, you remove the testicles um, and transport these uh, specimens back to the lab. So, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, as soon as you get the tissue, it's got to go on ice. You got to get it back to the lab as soon as possible. And, um, you know, being that it's New York, the transportation's not always that straightforward. So we took all manner of, you know, transportation to, like, get to and from these hospitals, some of which were a few hours away from New York. But, um, you know, the reason why I think this is amusing is because at, at, at various times we found ourselves on public transportation, with coolers of <laughs> human testicles. Oh, and I God. was always terrified that someone was going to ask us what was inside these things. You know, I mean, New York What do you is say a, at that point? If that's the I don't case. Know. That, that, that didn't happen. Sorry, they're balls on but, ice um, here. <laughs> I'm sorry. This, yeah, is like so. a, this is like a bad Seinfeld episode because in one Seinfeld episode, the guy's pinky toe came off and Kramer had to put it on ice and bring it back on a bus. This is no pinky toe in a, in a, in a cooler here. So wait no, a minute. You're, you're like in, the human testicles like on the, on the New York City subway. I mean, you're you know. an MD. You're an MD, correct? I am an MD, yeah. I'm and, an MD and, and I have a PhD. And so so wait. do you surgically actually do the snipping or castration, yep. I guess? And, yep. and you, 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 wow. That's amazing. So wait, do you, my, no, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be. That is that is funny, and I don't know. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm serious. When you take the testicles, you remove them from the scrotum there, or you just take the whole thing, like you. No, just, no, 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 no. You you remove them from the scrotum there. I mean, it that that it it takes literally like like five minutes. It's not do. like you chop the bag off with no, the, no, with the beans no. in it and throw it no. in an ice cooler. No. No, it's a little more elegant than that. Okay. It's, it, right. it's an incision. Not and much a more removal. elegant, but a little more elegant. Oh, okay, man. wow, that's great. great. So Please don't ask me in my cooler. So you're traveling the city with testicles in a box. See everybody, what we do out there for you guys to yeah. try to help you out. This is what we do. God bless you. Oh man, that's funny. All right, well, um, that's a good, that's a good place to end the show. It was a great interview, Marco. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on. Congrats on the paper and the work um, and the grants. I know you've been successful at some grants, so congratulations with everything. I see the lab is really starting to move and and, and grow, so that's great. And uh, we'll have to have you come back on in the future to update you know us and everybody on your progress. So uh, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Good talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Yost, you want to uh, take us out with a little music there? Uh, no, you forgot about the rant, my friend. Real oh, quick. Oh, man, real look quick. at me. I'm you jumping were, the you, gun. You, you were talking about the uh, the grants real quick. Somebody pointed out to me yesterday that uh, postdocs don't get, you know, sometimes all the grant money, well, in terms of their salary, uh, that's on the grant. And I guess I'm going to rant about grant bilking. That like sometimes a postdoc will get a grant and it'll be for say fifty grand for the postdoc, but they may be only earning forty six. What happened to that other four grand? And somebody was asking, I said, Oh, that's paying for your sonic or something. I don't know. What happens to that? Yeah, other? yeah, that happened to me. Marco, I don't know if it happened to you with New York Stem Cell Foundation, but it happened to me when I was a fellow and I got this fellowship, and the salary was for fifty thousand, and I wasn't making fifty thousand. I was making something like, uh, I was making uh, as a PhD scientist, I was making a hefty forty-two thousand in oh. New York City or something like that, forty-three thousand, which is amazing. And um, I remember saying, thinking the same thing, being like, "Wait, the hell? They're gonna <laughs> give me fifty, right? But I only get forty-two. Wait." <laughs> so I actually went to Lorenz, my boss at the time, and I was like, "Listen, I would like to be paid this full amount because I got the grant, and it's not coming out of your pocket, you know." Um, and eventually, he let that happen. However, being on the other side now, Marco, you could probably understand that once if that gets out in the lab, Yost, it's a disaster. You know, because like Bob's making fifty, you know, I'm making forty, and it's like, yo, Bob got his own money, yeah, but Bob they don't want to hear that. Money. Okay, um, well, so I, yeah, no, I think it's it's real, like it's real important for things to be equitable, and you know, things like that can complicate it for sure. So there's definitely you know multiple things going on there. Yeah, but it's not equitable if Bob wrote a winning grant. I mean, some people win, some people lose. I lost for many years until I won, and then you should be rewarded accordingly. But you know what they'll say, Yos? This is what the this is the argument. It's like it's like the father who says because I said so. It's really the work. It's the PI's grant, not yours. And so yeah, whatever he says goes, and that that really kind of sucks. There's really, nothing you could say about that. But, but you, you could know. you could take it a step further and say it's not even the PI's grant; it's the institution's grant. That's yes, true. That's 
true. I mean, that's the real true. the real rant here, and this is something for whatever time, is the fact that PhD scientists are being paid forty two thousand. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that's the real rant. That's the I mean, real rant. Whether it's forty two or fifty, in the end, um, for the amount of hours put in. And the amount of uh, time spent on education there, well, the compensation is clearly uh, not not where it should be. Yeah. But that's uh, 40, that's a whole nother game. Forty two is relatively high to to right. I mean, it depends on where you are, right? I mean, I don't know the. I mean, Margaret, do you? I don't know if the postdocs in the lab. The scale goes from what? It goes from like the low forties to the to maybe low fifties, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? Um, I so starting you're, you're, you're a like PhD 36. scientist in a big city making forty five thousand dollars a year. A lot of these people, the average age of postdocs are in their mid thirties, mm-hmm. mid to late there. So you presumably have a family of people. So you you have a family and you're living in New York on thirty five. I'm sorry, forty five thousand. Um, you know There's that's no gonna get, it's gonna get you a hot dog and a, <laughs> and a bus pass. <laughs> so uh, I mean, we really need to get that fixed. Um, uh, no, we gotta we, we go gotta forward. figure out where our priorities are. Right? Right? I mean, as a society, I mean, you know, it just, it's absurd. It, it is absurd. I mean, it's ridiculous. But well, anyway. Well, that's our rant again. So last time it was umbrellas. This time it was a little more serious. So yeah, um, no, last time it was umbrellas. <laughs> I like that. Anyway, all right. Now I can, now we can, now we can go to the music. Thanks again, Marco. Thanks, Yost, man. We'll talk yeah, to you guys later. Thanks right? for coming on.